It's a real pleasure to be brought into God's presence in worship with you this morning. And it's my privilege to invite you to turn to our sermon text today with me, which is the first chapter in Philippians, primarily verses 27 to 30. I do want to say that we are breaking order with the book of Exodus and plan to return to it next Lord's Day as God wills. Today we're looking at this text as a sort of state of the church type text. We're taking a a one-off in the book of Philippians to consider our behaviors as a church and what it means to do life together and light of the gospel and so on. I was thinking about this opportunity to preach before you today as I was studying this week and praying. and I was thinking about all the many things that demand our, our eyes, our attention, our focus, our thoughts. I, I thought about, um, just, just to name a few, without opining about the wickedness or value or goodness of any of them, the, the Grammys, the, the Super Bowl, the, the State of the Union, spy balloons, history, relief, family, concern. You could probably put a sentence or two beside each one of those words, and you probably have thoughts and would pass values and whatnot there, but my aim in bringing them up is very simple. There are many things that vie for our thinking for our focus, for our bandwidth in life. And God is not unwise to give us just 168 hours in a week. In his infinite wisdom, he has granted us the time that we have not only in a week, but in a life. And as it's been said, the days are long, but the years sure are short. And so we do really well to stop periodically, at least annually, and take an inventory of how we should behave, how we should conduct ourselves, how we should live our lives as citizens, not simply of an earthly country, but of a heavenly kingdom. You understand? That's what Christians have professed, is that we're citizens not only of an earthly kingdom, but of a heavenly kingdom, and that that should bring some alignment with our behaviors. And if you are not considering yourself at this juncture a Christian, I hope that you will this very day. You will do so by receiving the gospel of Christ, which is prolific in the text that we're focusing on this morning. That is the gospel of Christ. So we best know what the definition of the gospel is right out of the gate. The gospel is the good news of what Christ has done to save sinners. The gospel is the good news of what Christ has done to save sinners. And what Christ has done to save sinners is indeed good news. It's the best news. And I'm going to argue this morning that it is the kind of news that you ought to order your life around. That it is a compelling reason to live. That your life can be more than just the avoidance of death and the plotting of temporary comforts but that your life can be ordered around something meaningful, something even worth dying for because of the promised hope that we have of life in Christ. So the gospel is the good news of what Christ has done 
to save sinners. And I need to clear the deck a little before I read our text, just a little bit with a theological concept that could get in our way if it's not talked about from the very beginning. And so I want to do that here with you by using a bit of an illustration. When I was a teenager, I had a friend named Travis. And Travis introduced me to two things that I thought did not go together, peanut butter and bananas. But they do. In fact, I had one this morning. I was fine with bananas, and I was fine with peanut butter. But until my friend Travis introduced me to it, I had no idea that just like peas and carrots go together, so do bananas and peanut butter, at least in my world. Two things that went well together, I didn't know, and I had previously thought needed to remain separate. Let me tell you about two other things that sound like they need to remain separate until you try to consume them together. It's two axioms of the world that are rooted in some concept of biblical truth. The first one is the best things in life are free. You've heard that? The best things in life are free, like relationships or time or, in our context, the gospel, free. Then there's another statement of the world. Anything worth having is worth working for, isn't it? Anything worth having is worth working for. And you say to yourself, how do those two things possibly go together? They seem as antithetical as peanut butter and bananas. Anything worth having in life is worth working for. That is like sharing, suffering, conflict, work, labor, teamwork. You use a bunch of words that sound hard, and there it is. And the best things in life are free. So which is it? Is it free gospel or is it hard work? Yes. Yes. Both. The gospel is free and the gospel is a compelling way to shape your life patterns, your, your conduct. It's more compelling than the State of the Union or the Grammys or the Super Bowl or any of the other things before mentioned. Even your biological family, as important as that stewardship is, the gospel is a, the most compelling reason. It's not just a compelling reason. It's the most compelling reason to shape your life patterns and your, your conduct. To, to put it in Philippians terms, to know the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings. The power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like Jesus in his death and then his life, Philippians 3, 10, and 11 says. That's the both and, where power leads to suffering and suffering to death and death to life. And we're okay with the power and we're okay with the life, but the suffering and the death in the middle of that equation is where we really st it all starts to break down for us. And with good reason, for there is no intrinsic value in pain. I am not a sadist. I am not arguing that you should self-hurt self so that you might somehow get closer to God, hang yourself up or something. I'm not arguing that at all. There's no intrinsic value in suffering. But there is purpose to sharing in suffering for Christ's sake. There's purpose in it. And our text clearly will say that today. Troubles come when we slip into earthly-mindedness to the neglect of heavenly-mindedness in how we think. And it's such a quick slip, isn't it? We all slide back into this world only thinking. An earthly mindset may follow schismatics who misuse Jewish law in the Christian life. An earthly mindset may live for the comfort of their next meal rather than laboring in prayer for the global church. Philippians talks about these things, specifically in the third chapter. 
An earthly mindset may lose interconnectivity that brings fulfillment and rejoicing in the progress of the gospel and the progress of our own Christian lives and faithfulness as defined by Jesus and the apostles along with their earliest associates. Thinking about earthly mindset only will cause you to miss out on thinking about agreement instead of petty disagreement and pursuing agreement. It'll stifle labor. Your motive will move toward profit for yourself and praise for yourself, and it will stifle sacrifice and co-laboring. Corporate prayer will wane. Gospel urgency will halt. Gratitude will be limited. And it, it becomes time again and again for the Christian perennially to return to thinking about the gospel for Christ's sake. To pursue this and the God of peace will be with you, to put it in Philippians 4 language. You'll be more content. You'll have a revival of concern for mission support, Philippians 4 teaches. There's 104 verses in Philippians in four chapters. And the four verses we will read, they typify, they summarize, they interact with all of them. And everything I'm saying to you now is summarizing and interacting with the other texts within Philippians that you might be able to grasp the full and complete truth from Philippians 1, 27 to 30. An earthly mindset return to a heavenly mindset will result in fellowship in the global church, an opportunity to see God supply your every need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus and not according to your aptitude and your hoarding and your close-fistedness and your bitter attitude. Joy of the gospel in conversations, even in the highest offices like Caesar's household, which is the very last end of Philippians, will be joy. God will give converts of religious rebellion as well as political rebellion in His good time, by His good glory, according to His good grace, and you will have the opportunity here or there to greet every saint with salutations and encouragement, just like we're imperatively told to do at the end of Philippians. You have the promise of a heavenly greeting in the household of God, and that is good. And when we find, when we lift our eyes from navel-gazing back up to Christ, then the world sees more clearly the light of the gospel through the church's witness. And it is a collective and corporate witness. It is to be a cohesive witness. It is to be a witness that people can smell and sense even beyond even what we say as they watch us go about the community. There'll be more rejoicing. It won't be so, so frown-faced. There'll be more joy. The, this, this book of Philippians, Red on Balance, says all of these things. But that joy is not the default mode of the Christian life. Oh, no. That joy is not found in the absence of effort. No. It's found in us laboring, striving, contending, arm by arm, day by day, inch by inch, together in the gospel. So we want to substantiate that good news should lead to good living. Like peanut butter goes with bananas. We want to offer three ways we will work to pursue good living. That is in our beliefs, in our missions, and in the face of opposition. So it is in our beliefs, in our missions, and in the face of opposition. So good news can lead to good living through work together in beliefs, missions, and in the face of opposition. Let's see if you can find them out as we read our text today from Philippians 1, 27 to 30. This letter written 12 years after Paul started this church in Macedonia, this church at Philippi, which was named after Philip of Macedon. It was started about 400 years, the town was, before the church was established. And here we have a church that has been on Paul's heart and mind as he's traveled to start churches other places. And he's writing back to them almost like a, a loving missionary support letter 
to a church that he loves, and he is, it's a love fest. He is encouraging them and providing encouragement for them from the first to the last, and somewhere in the middle here, he gives some pleading, some exhortation, some recalibration, some state of the church type of address, and we parachute drop down into the middle of that and listen to what he says, and here's, here's what it says. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, see, they're concerned about whether or not he's coming. He says, whether I'm there or not, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, for Christ's sake, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict, having the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. May God bless the reading of his word and minister grace unto all who ear, hear with ears of faith. You see, they're concerned in a personality. They think for their church to be complete that the Apostle Paul has to come visit them again and again. Paul is putting that to rest. The first part of Philippians begins with the Apostle Paul and Timothy, so concerned with handing off the faith and the leadership. He's got Timothy right by his side as a son in the faith. And they write to every single member at the church at Philippi. And they also mention that there are elders and deacons in that church. First two chapters, first two verses, the first chapter of Philippians. And it might help if you have your Bible open and you can glance at some of these things as I'm mentioning them and, and referencing them and even reciting them. And he writes to his church at Philippi about a dozen years after him and Silas planted this church during his second of three missionary journeys. And Paul writes this letter from prison, and he has all kinds of people that aren't pulling for him. And what he says to these at Philippi as he writes to them and sends the letter by way of Epaphroditus, who almost died of sickness amidst all this, he says to them, hey, it's not really important whether I come back and see you again or not. This is what's important. What I'm telling you right here is what's important. The church survives in perpetuity, not because of my personality, but because of Christ. The church thrives, not because you have the right person come to you, but because the person of Christ is operating for you, and the work of Christ fills you. It's what goes out. It's not what comes in. And so this text is a treatise on those things. And we want to substantiate that good news should lead to good living. Good news, good news can lead to good living. You can match the good news, that is the gospel, the euangelion, good news, with good living, that is good patterns of life, like this very first phrase in our text says. You can put them together. You can see a free gospel producing hard work. They go together. It says in chapter 1, verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. An alternate translation of that phrase right there would be behave as citizens worthy. Behave as citizens. Let your behavior be as suitable to the gospel as citizens of the heavenly kingdom. That's the undergirding of the word that's being translated there. That's then repeated in Philippians 3.20. Your heavenly citizenship should supplant bare earthly mindedness. 
Your God is not your stomach. It's not your next meal. You feast on manna from heaven. That's where you find your shaping for your life. Behave as citizens worthy. So it's worth considering. What is suitable behavior for citizens of any country? You might name some things. Perhaps they need to speak a certain way, recite certain things, obey certain laws. There may be things that you speak about for a country. Now, all metaphors break down, but, but this is actually instructive for how we read our text today because citizenship is the undergirding metaphor that Paul is pulling from here. And it makes sense that he would do that based on the fact that this is a city that was steeped in pride for its citizenship. There were veterans planted in this city. They would have proudly waved the Roman flag. And Paul is saying to them, I need your allegiance first and foremost to be to the heavenly flag. That's what he's saying then here with words like this. And he's saying that you need to behave as citizens worthy, suitable for the kingdom, suitable for the gospel. You have received this gospel freely. Now live with your labor aligned with the gospel of Christ. And I want to hear about this from you, whether I come to you or not. That's immaterial. I want to hear that this is how you are behaving. The divinely inspired author of Philippians, the Apostle Paul, offers his own self as an example in this plea for them to live a certain way. After he finishes his work in Philippians, he goes down to Thessalonica and later writes back to the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 2.2, notes the agony and the suffering example that Paul sets in his second missionary journey in Philippi. He says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered, we'd already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of such of much conflict. So he recited to the Thessalonians what kind of suffering, what kind of conflict that he had experienced in Philippi. It was, it was historical. It was noteworthy. They spoke to the church at Thessalonica this way to help them understand how the freeness of the gospel also comports with working for what's worth working for. He spoke to the church at Thessalonica there in 1 Thessalonians 2 for the need for purity and clear truth and not error of the trust to share the gospel, of avoiding man-pleasing, of avoiding flattery and fear and greed as God is their witness. He talks about behavior in the gospel to be affectionate and caring, even maternal to others in the gospel, doing life together and not just simply counting converts. But his reference to Philippi is really referencing material that is laid out on balance in the 16th chapter of Acts. And it's probably worth understanding because that's where the undergirding for the plea to live as worthy citizens of a heavenly country comes from. It's rooted in what God has done in others, particularly in Paul, as an example of how we are supposed to accept the freeness of the gospel and then get to work behaving in certain manners. So consider the things that occurred in Acts 15.35 to Acts 17.9. I'll just run through them. You don't have to turn there. You might note that it's mainly Acts 16 where the information is found. But that is a recounting of Paul's second missionary journey. And that could be justification for Paul himself to have taken a more comfortably yet less fulfilling path, a less gospel path, if he'd wanted to. The trappings of that chapter would have been reason. 
He could have complained due to the divinely orchestrated conflict that he would have with Barnabas, where they would part ways over their understanding of John Mark and his value. Though two missions would get done, Paul could have complained that him and Barnabas didn't get along in that moment. But the text doesn't record that. It doesn't talk about complaining and grumbling with Paul. He partners with Silas. They, they pick up Timothy and they go on. And I guess he could have complained about the gross medical procedure that he needed to perform on Timothy with no anesthesia. I'm not spelling that out any further. Just to say, he had to do a medical procedure on Timothy that Timothy might be able to be effective in his ministry for the gospel going forward in their travel. He had previously had to work through conflict with the elders at Jerusalem to figure out how Jews and Gentiles in the first century would get along in the gospel. You picking up on anything to complain about yet? To bellyache? To grumble about? The churches were strengthened in spite of, or maybe you might even say because of, the apostles' perseverance in the face of pain, in the face of conflict. It was and is a struggle to progress the gospel was and is a struggle to live together for the gospel. The only reason they got to Philippi in Europe to begin with, and, and Philippi was the first place in Europe that a church was planted to the glory of God, it was moving west from Asia. The only reason it ever got there is because the Holy Spirit blocked Paul from going where he wanted to go. So Paul doesn't know if he's going to be able to visit again. He doesn't always get to go where he wants to go. He can't control whether or not Epaphroditus lives or dies. Paul is like us. Even though he's an apostle, a divinely inspired, authoritative apostle to write scripture that we use today, he's also not aware of when he's going to die, who's going to die, whether he's going to have sorrow upon sorrow or not. He's walking by faith and not by sight, just the same as us. And he could have complained, I wanted to go to Bithynia, but you made me go to Macedonia. But no, he goes. And guess what? Churches were started. Churches were strengthened. Souls were saved. You get the picture so far. I mean, I wonder what God wants to honor in us if we would get over ourselves and sacrifice bitterness, and really there's no time for it if you put your hand to the plow side by side and go. There's still going to be problems that emerge, but they're going to be problems that help us to fail forward in the gospel instead of staying behind. In fact, Philippians talks that way. Forgetting what is behind, I press forward to what lies ahead. Paul talks that way. Thinking about the chronology, though, of the story of how Philippi got started. And the only reason being that he was even there is because God didn't let him go where he wanted to. He's not complaining, per se, as he's in Macedonia and not away the other direction, to the north and west instead of to the north and east. He goes to this, this Roman colonized city where veterans steeped in Greek culture games like boxing and racing and wrestling. The Greek agona, the conflict to prepare for mastery in those games, we would then be able to leverage that metaphor in our text today to the conflict that we have for evangelistic purposes, for church purposes. And he would go to this town, to this city named Philippi, and he would suffer. There was this, uh, he was preaching the gospel, and there was this, this lady that, that came to faith named Lydia. She was a businesswoman, a seller of purple. She had money, and she was, it was good. It was good times, you know. Little church was started. Paul keeps preaching the gospel. He's sacrificing time to go in on the Sabbath to honor the Lord, to preach the gospel. And in his work there, he has opportunity to heal a slave girl that is demon-possessed. She's a fortune teller. And the slave girl's 
owners are quite disappointed that they can't monetize the slave girl anymore. And so they, they gin up a crowd against him. You know where this goes. He winds up in jail in the inner part of the prison. And you know what he did? He sat in that jail, him and Silas, and they just bellyached and complained and bellyached and complained because they were in prison. No, he preached the gospel. You know what he didn't even do right away? He didn't even say and evoked his Roman citizenship, which he had. He studied at the feet of Gamaliel in the famous Hillel school. So he was a Jew, but he was also a Gentile of some note in the sense that he himself was a Roman citizen, Saul of Tarsus. So this guy had a background. He understood logic and argumentation. He knew the history of ideas steeped in Stoicism and all of the better of philosophy from Greco and Roman thought. He could understand it. And here he is sitting in prison, and he doesn't even evoke his rights and privileges right away. Wow, what a statement. And you know what happens? Maybe you don't. Let me tell you what happens. So Acts 16 tells us what happens. So in the prison, people start converting at the preaching. Right? He's not even supposed to be there to begin with. And, and after they're converting, there's this... this this earthquake, a big earthquake, and, and by the way, that should just cause us to pause and say, and we, we will, Lord willing, pray later in the service for the people affected by the, the large earthquake in the region of Turkey and Syria. We ought to pray for them. We ought to consider how to be supportive and helpful because there are Christians there and further just people there that are suffering and they have uncertainties and there's major, major problems there. And if you could just kind of sense that that's there, because it would be insensitive if I didn't say it. And think about the fact that Paul is sitting in the inner part of the prison, watched by the jailer, and an earthquake happens. And the benefit of the earthquake is somehow with the earthquake, the stocks are broken. He's freed. He could run away if he wants to. And in the midst of all of it, all the prisoners stay there. So that after the earthquake, when the jailer wakes up, he knows it's a death sentence and a painful one. If the prisoners are gone, he realizes that everybody is disoriented and that stocks are broken. And he goes to fall on his own sword because it'd be better just to kill himself than to face the Roman authorities for dereliction of duty and letting them go. And Paul says, wait, 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 whoa, 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 don't kill yourself. We're right here. We're fine. Don't need to do that. I mean, stick it to the man. Die. I mean, isn't that what we'd say? Go ahead and fall on your sword. You were rough with me when you put me in these stocks. You didn't even ask me if I was a citizen. That's what we'd be tempted to say, right? But that wouldn't be be behaving as citizens of a heavenly kingdom. And Paul knew it. And so what does the apostle Paul do? He says, hey, don't do that. And you know what happens to that jailer? He gets saved. Radically converted by the power, not only of the words, but of the witness that preceded the words of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because Paul suffered and went through cumbersome experiences for the sake of the gospel. And I'm not here to lift up Paul. I'm here to lift up Christ. But insofar as Paul followed Christ, it's all right to follow his example. In fact, Paul sets himself up as an example in the text that we read for today. This is the sort of thing that you go through when you are shaping your life around the gospel of Christ. And we could go on about Paul's biography just, just at Philippi after the earthquake and the conversion and that jailer asking, what must I do to be saved? And he tells him the gospel, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Believe in the gospel, believe that Jesus did this for you. It's Jesus' work on your behalf that you might be saved and you will be and he was and all the rest. 
And they come back, the authorities really don't want to admit what they've done, and so Paul makes them come back, and they, they realize they didn't do their homework, they were stirred up by the mob, and he's a Roman citizen, so they have to let him go, and they escort him out of town, say, don't come back to our town, you're causing too much of a stir. And so it's, it's this kind of mixed bag ending where the church has to then go on and be the church in spite of the fact that, that in many ways their establisher and their founder, in many ways their hero in the faith is to move on. It's his purpose to move on and it is their purpose to have him move on. And he's still talking about it. He's still talking about it at this point in the story. From a different prison, probably in AD 62, as he's writing these letters from prison back to churches that's been started missionary churches that are now established and he will probably die at the hands of Nero in a few years and he's writing this letter to the church at Philippi. The good news that you have received can lead to good living as citizens of the heavenly kingdom while you're on earth. How? Three points. Quickly, the first one is good news can lead you to good living through working together in beliefs, in doctrines, in theology, in biblical studies. And I ground that in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. If you have your Bible open, you can see it afresh. It's the second stanza. They're standing together in beliefs. And I'm satisfied that they had to work through some of that. It says here, that I may hear of you that you are standing firm. And chapter 4 picks up on this standing theme firmness of standing in other places in the new testament it's about standing firm in the faith and it talks here about being one it says one spirit pneuma and one mind psychos psychos sort of like psychology is a word that gets transliterated and carried forward so it's it's how in your thinking thinking is a major theme in philippians i hear that i want to hear of you as your pursuant as you're laboring toward this good living in light of the good news I want you to work in the arena of belief. Not that you'll have uniformity in everything, but that you will have a basic unity together in the gospel. And this is so important. It requires effort. Unity requires effort. We function too often as if we think that unity in the church is the default mode for the church. And it is emphatically not. The Bible says in another place, in the book of Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul is writing as a prisoner there, and he's urging them to walk in a manner worthy, very similar to the text we have today, just in a different epistle, a different letter. He tells them to walk in a manner worthy, to walk as, behave as good citizens of a heavenly kingdom, and he tells them to do that with humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love. All that's very operative, but listen to how verse 3 reads in Ephesians 4 eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Eager to maintain unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He goes on to say there's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, one, 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 one. What's the point? Unity. And look at that verse. I'm glad you have it pulled up. If it's not in your Bible, just look at the screen. Eager. So there's energy in the maintenance ministry of unity in the church. And it is, a, it is sometimes an hourly eagerness. And we fall and we get back up. It's, it's sometimes a minute-by-minute minute emphasis, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It is a unity that's not just for unity's sake. It is a unity of the Spirit. The genitive is of the Spirit. That is God. It is a God-wrought unity. 
God gives us unity. How is it that we can say that this unity is from God? It's because God's indwelling spirit is in every believer. So we have what we need to pursue eagerly, to labor, to work for unity. But it's still a work. Judge that by how many otherwise gospel-believing churches wind up dividing up and splitting in disunity and disagreement. This book itself talks about it. There's two ladies that have been helpful in the cause of the gospel. Their names are Euodia and Syntyche. And if you read later in Ephesians 4, 2, and 3, what you will find is Paul is picking up on this theme and urging them to find agreement. We don't know what they've disagreed over. It's unimportant. In fact, I think it's actually omitted on purpose so that we can't just say, oh, well, we don't have that problem. The problem was they disagreed and they were no longer standing side by side in the cause of the gospel. And they had to fix the disagreement as best as they could so they could move forward. And the disagreement there for Yodi and Syntyche, Clement is mentioned and Obviously, the leaders of the church, the, the elders and the deacons are mentioned earlier in the letter. They're supposed to work together to, to try to figure this out so that they can all be useful again. And so there is something about how we need to strive together, to labor together, to pursue the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That Paul says that others may hear, that I may hear, that others may hear, that you're standing firm in what you believe. That you're standing firm with the same mentality in one spirit. And you're standing firm in this gospel with what you believe, even if you don't have absolute uniformity, you're standing with unity. And that is a labor that requires effort. It's not the default mode. Unity around substance. Unity suitable for the gospel. If that were easy, more people would be doing it. That's why we must labor together. That's why we have these congregational members meetings that nobody wants to go to, including me. But I'm glad I went. I'm glad I went. It's kind of like, uh, kind of like running. Nobody likes running. Everybody likes having ran. <laughs> you know, <laughs> no, nobody, right? Nobody likes fasting. They like having fasted. You know, anything discipline oriented. Nobody likes meeting. They like having met. But it's so important, so important. Congregational members meeting so important to fulfill our obligation to guard and proclaim the gospel. Each one of us to receive and release members. We must pursue credible professions of faith that our role might have regenerated by the Spirit members in this local church body. That's not legalism. That's simply forensically legal and biblical. The New Testament talks of those inside the church and outside the church as identifiable in more than one place. We invite you to Christ to come inside, and if you want to, we welcome you in. And you're a part of how we deliberate on presenting a witness to the watching world that is pursuant, albeit imperfectly, it is pursuant of this Christian unity that can only be had by Christians. So if the church doesn't pursue Christians on the front end, they don't have the spirit to operate to eagerly pursue the unity of the spirit, the bond of peace on the back end, and it's never happening. It can never happen. And you say, that's, I don't really see that's a lot of heady stuff. Basically, if you don't have Christians in your church, you can't have Christian unity. That's it. So it's the work. By and large, it's the work. Establish who has a credible profession of faith and then grow them people up in it. That's the work. It is exhausting. Sometimes it's thankless, but it's for Christ's sake. And it's the work. It's what's being described here.
Good news can lead to good living not only through work together to have common belief, but also to have common missions. And part of our members meeting next week, if I can mention it one more time, is to address that very thing. Our elder chairman, chairman laid out in the last members meeting of last year to say we're going to pursue corporate unity as a church and corporate prayer this year more frequently. We're going to pursue common beliefs and identification with missions that plants churches that are like-minded with us. We're going to try to do that to the best of our ability, those things. He laid those out very well, beautifully. And we'll talk about them again next Sunday afternoon, Lord willing, together as members. But the long and the short of it is a foundation of sound doctrine produces and inflames and can fuel effective missions. Now, it doesn't have to. In fact, that's the problem we have with the church at Ephesus in the beginning of Revelation chapter 2. They had lost their first love. They had the best preachers, ostensibly. They had the best teaching. They had good doctrine. Everything lined up. But he said, you've lost your first love. And I wonder if that's not what he's heading off with the church at Philippi a little bit, because he talks about how they've renewed their concern for missions work through him at the end of this book. I wonder if it's not similar. I wonder if the church at Philippi isn't starting, hasn't gotten away from it and come back to it. That their effort out there would match their belief in here. There's a unity that produces consolidated, cohesive, focused effort. United, not AWOL or absent from the flock. United, not dividing into factions psychologically. United around a common covenant. United, not striking the corporate work of prayer from our schedule or the corporate work even of missions. I was so thankful for Brother John's sermon last week from Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38, on our mission. Right belief drives us, should drive us, to labor in the gospel going forward, or what we call for shorthand, missions. And if you look back in our focus text today, it says in Philippians 1, 27 and following, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and I see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, that's beliefs, and then striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's, that's effort, that's missions. And that striving had produced some fruit. We know that Caesar's household had converts. You can read at the end of Philippians. There's some, some things, there's some information he drops here just to encourage them. It's the reason it's sometimes referred to as a mission support letter. But note this imagery in terms of side by side. And some have said this is sort of like in military procession where they would be flanked side by side with their shields and then they would have the teeth of their arrows out or their spears out to get to offensively get anything that would come at them. They were side by side defensively and offensively as they were moving forward. This is a military imagery. In fact, these are either athletic or military images top to tail in this passage. Paul is using a, a, a batch of metaphors to describe effort together in the same direction. And this is one of the places that it happens. It says here that you are striving side by side for the gospel. Side by side, or contending, you might say, for the faith of the gospel, like Jude 3 says. Contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Contending for it. So that's, that is a, an effort in striving in leaning into and promoting the gospel in our midst and going forward. So good news 
can lead the gospel living not only through studying hard to figure out our unity in beliefs, even if it isn't uniformity, but also our unity in missions, taking it forward, united, not AWOL. Point three, good news can lead to good living through work together in the face of opposition. In the face of opposition. The effort of standing and striving both reminds me of those who are returning from Babylonian exile only to find opposition closer to home. The homecoming was not a welcoming one for them. And opposition in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah abounded. Sambalot, for one, attempted to get them to stop working and to come down from striving to rebuild the Lord's house long enough to consider if the work should even be done. These were opposers, they were opposers, and Nehemiah sniffed it out. He knew it, and he would, he, he would not stop the great work and come down for a meeting of no consequence with these that were opposed to the mission. These were opposers. They were op- opposition. They were cloaked as an angel of the light, but they were opposers. And that's how we must approach building the Lord's house according to the gospel. Like it says in Nehemiah, we're doing a great work, and we cannot come down to quibble with you about whether or not it ought to be done. Opposition is assured when we set our hand to the plow, when we work and labor, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. They had to stay in guard, that is, Nehemiah's compatriots. They had to stay in guard as well as strive to build. They had to stand and to strive. You can read the information in the first six to eight chapters of Nehemiah. They had to walk and chew gum. They had to do two things at the same time. Their effort reminds us of the effort that is to be suitable or worthy of gospel living in unity. We should assume opposition and prepare to stand anyway. Otherwise, fear will overcome our better judgment and slow or even halt gospel work, essential work. You do think gospel work is essential work, don't you? Do you think that gospel work is essential work? Maybe that's a place to start. Is gospel work essential work? Is it a matter of necessity that the gospel goes forward? Are these essential laborers, that is, your fellow church members, for the kingdom? As much as you might think of medical or law enforcement workers as essential workers in times of weather or war or disease. Essential workers, do you think the gospel work is essential? If you say no... Your struggle is not with man, but with God. Because he has said in no uncertain terms it is. No uncertain terms. It is. Why all this ink otherwise? What's the point? If we're not to take the example to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. It's little wonder that the enemy seeks to give us a spirit of fear, of man-pleasing. Now, is it? Some opponents do not claim to be Christian, and some do. It's no matter. We must pursue gospel unified efforts to guard and proclaim this gospel. Not to please man, but to please God. We must work with men insofar as they're members of our church, insofar as we're laboring side by side with even other churches for the cause of the gospel. But we must not live to please man. For Paul says, how would I be a servant of God if I were still living as a servant of man, Galatians 
We are united. We are not to be conflict-averse either. Look at how our text proceeds to the end today. Chapter 1, verse 28, Philippians 1, 28, to recap, and not frightened in anything by your opponents, assuming opposition. It says, though, that this living this way, this heavenly citizenship-mindedness, living this way, standing and striving together in faith, belief, as well as in missions, this kind of living, this living weakness, it presents a sign that is from God, by God, of your salvation, so it produces your assurance of salvation, is this getting involved in the work, but also of unbelievers' destruction, of their perdition. To put it differently, exactly what I talked about earlier happens when we get to work on the cause of the gospel. What happens is those that actually are sincere in their belief, it starts to show, and those that are not, it starts to show. And that is good. It is good. Why is it good? Because one, we're more united in the gospel, and two, those that actually are not believers in a gospel that calls us to suffering, to share in the sufferings of Christ, they have an opportunity to godly convert and become a part of the church. The lack of clarity about whether or not you're a Christian is not in your best interest. Because one day, very soon, you're going to face him. And you are going to want to have had clarity in the here and now, for it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a God that is alive. And by faith, we tell you about something that you're going to see. Come and trust him. The gospel is good news of what Christ has done on your behalf. You need only receive it. It is not complicated, but it is compelling. It is not complicated, but it is a compelling reason to reorder your life, to reorder your, your resources, to reorder your time, to reorder your affections. It's a compelling reason to reorder, not to live anymore to please man, in a perpetual hamster wheel of anxiety, but to pray to the Lord of the harvest to grant us gospel progress and then to labor in that harvest field. The text goes on in verse 29 that the glory of this clarity, the goodness of God, it says it's been granted. That word is, it's really rooted in the word for grace. It's been graciously given to you. It's been granted to you. You won't think it that way unless you believe in peanut butter and bananas, at least the metaphor I talked about. It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, for Christ's sake, you should not only believe, that is, have faith, remember how we started the sermon, but also suffer. Two things that seem to go together that absolutely, that seem to be apart, rather, that absolutely go together. And then he uses another metaphor, uh, or I shouldn't say another metaphor, I should say another descriptive term for what we might think of as, as discomfort. If suffering is, is the, the thing that happens to us, like the pain that's inflicted upon us, conflict is the thing that's discomforting that we pursue because we believe it's worth it. So, so to think of it, um, suffering here is the Greek word pasco, where we get the paschal lamb. Jesus is the ultimate lamb of God. So that's suffering. If you look here, that we are granted not only to believe on the one hand, the free grace, free gospel of grace from Christ, but also to labor in, to suffer for Christ's sake, that is, that which happens to us because of our progress in the gospel. And it says in verse 30, engaged or having the same conflict, the same agona, the same, 
the same kinds of things that you would have as an athlete in the Greek games, only as members of the church for the cause of the gospel, that kind of discipline in, in study and in going, you'll have that kind of discomfort and you'll have suffering. You'll share in the sufferings of Christ and the, the conflict in the discomfort on just the side of things that you do that, that you could put your time other places concerned with other things. If this becomes the shaping thing of your life, that is the gospel, then you will be like me. You saw I had this kind of stuff happen in Philippi. Remember Acts 16, 1 Thessalonians 2, 2. You be like me and I'll be like you. We're in this together where we share this free belief and we also share in this labor, this suffering. This conflict. And I just wonder if you have drank the Kool-Aid of a gospel implication of just strictly comfort in your life. I wonder if you know the number of hours I spend looking at this book before I preach to you and I'm not even upset about it. I wonder if Paul could say to the people, I want you to live like me in this way. I wonder if I could say to you, would you just sweat over this book with me? Just, could we just read it together over and over and over until we find as much unity as we can we go forward. You cannot outsource standing firm in the cause of the gospel. You have to do it too. You can't outsource praying. It's work and we have to do it together corporately. You, you can't outsource striving. We all have to put our hand to the plow for the missionary effort. You can't outsource. It's not for some other member or some other pastor. We must look together, study together, be guided together, grow together, serve together, give together, and if necessary, die together. That's what it means to labor in the gospel. And I set myself up as no exemplar in many ways. I tell you, I am a living witness of the need for grace. But I'll tell you this. God has given me a love for his word. I pray it doesn't go away. And I pray you pray it wouldn't go away. And I pray that you would have love for his word too. Because this is where we get our information. This is where we get the stuff that God uses in us and through us for transformation, to give us the right word at the right time, the right attitude at the right place, and grace for where we have failed, failed. Peter failed. He was called out by Paul. Paul failed. We don't even get data about whether or not him or Barnabas were right in their disagreement. Yodi and Syntyche aren't out of the camp. Their, land, they're written in the, their names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, Philippians 4 says, even as they're being told, hey, fix your disagreement. It's baked into the cake of relationships that those kinds of things are going to happen. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to turn tail and run to the furthest corner of Christendom that you can get to, the furthest thing away from Christianity in a local church, or are you going to get in the middle of it, the grime of it, and figure it out? That's why there's other texts in the New Testament, like Paul says at the end of his life, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. 1 Timothy 6.12, a top-to-tail view of the Christian life. Or 2 Timothy 4, 7, and 8, truly at the end of Paul's life, he says, I have conflicted the good fight. I have agona the good life. I have fought the good fight. Same word that ends your text today in Philippians. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Will we fight the fight so that we can finish the race that was started and have kept the faith. It is a fight, and it's a fight worth having because it says in 2 Timothy 4, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, Paul says, but to every single person that have loved his appearing. Do you love Jesus' appearing, and are you longing for him to appear again? Don't you want him to come again? I know we want many people, many sons to come to glory. Many people to be saved before then. 
but we're also to hasten the day of the Lord, aren't we? I mean, really, you want to talk about heavenly citizenship and, and not just simply being earthly-minded? You, you, you get there when you're thinking about what this is going to be like to have all the time. And, 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 and a Lord's Day is special, but all the time, always worshiping in the presence of the Lord, always doing what we do to the glory of the Lord, never being frustrated, no more sin, no more tears. That's, we're going to be there, so we should want the Lord's appearing, shouldn't we? It's a struggle. Paul talks about it in all of his epistles. He talks about it in Colossians, same way. Christ we proclaim. For Christ's sake, we warn everybody, we teach everybody with wisdom that we may present everybody mature in Christ. For this toil, I struggle, I conflict, I agonize with all of Christ's energy that he powerfully works within me. I want you to know what a great struggle I've had for you. But I want your hearts to be encouraged, to be knit together in love. See how these things go together? Grace and truth, freeness of the gospel, and labor, suffering, conflict. I wonder if we've thought of this Christian life as just being as comfortable as possible until we die. That is antithetical to the implications of the gospel of Christ. And that's the message with this text today. What does it mean for you to avail yourself to discomfort with the other members for the cause of the gospel? For you, what does it mean? For some of you, you need to become a member. What does it mean for you to avail yourself to discomfort for the cause of the gospel with the people? Some of you, it means you need to wisely figure out how to overcome some besetting disagreement. Some of you need to learn how to be less divisive. You need to triage things to figure out what really is worthy of a fight and what is just kind of a eh, personality thing. Some of you, you just need to overcome the lethargy. You're members, but you're just not significantly connected at anything. And one way to do that is you're going to get barreled over the head with the mission of the church just by coming to a members meeting, just by showing up. Like you're just barrel over the head with all the stuff that we're begging God to help us to do. Come to a prayer meeting. You'll us beg God to help us to do. And what another set of hands to the plow would be. I don't know what it is for you. But what does it mean? What's the implication for you? To forgo that uncompelling, satanic vision for your life. That just says, I'm going to try to be as comfortable as I can, outwardly wasting away until my inward renewal helps me to meet Jesus. Getting rid of that, pressing on to what's ahead. What does it mean for you? What's the implications of the gospel for you? And that is grace. Because you'll never be as fulfilled as you could be. You won't rejoice with the angels in heaven, like this text says to do broader in Philippians. You won't find joy unless you enter this arena. And that's by faith when things start to become sight. Let's pray.